John gave me this, I thought, hmm, that might be tricky. And um, I actually struggled with this idea because I was thinking, if you had a revival of something, <laughs> I kind of indicate it's been around for a while, it's gone in a bit of decline and needs a bit of revival. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and there's plenty of examples of that from the Old Testament because you have a long period of time and Israel was always going downhill, so they always needed to be revived. But I thought, the New Testament, it's only just arrived. Uh, it's hard to revive something that's only just arrived. and It's more about the birth of something rather than revival of something. And most of the teaching in the New Testament is all focused on things you expect when something starts, i.e. how do you live with each other? How do all these different nations and cultures live in the same community? Or how do we stop false teaching coming in right at the beginning that are gonna, we're going to take us off, off stray? So I thought, what examples can I talk about from the New Testament about revival? And I, I, won, I pondered this for a couple of weeks and was really struggling. Um, but then it occurred to me um, that there is a revival in the New Testament. And there is something in the New Testament that's been around for a while and has gone into a long decline and needs renewal, and needs revival. And that is actually at the heart of the story of the New Testament. And what occurred to me, the revival you have in the New Testament is actually the renewal of Israel itself. It's the revival of Israel. It's the revival of a decline, <laughs> something that was in decline, something that was not doing its job, that was not doing what it was supposed to do, that was drifting far from God, and needed to be renewed, and needed to be brought back to him. Or maybe, as Paul put it in Romans, it's the revival of true Israel um, that is talked about in the New Testament. And as I was thinking more about this, um, it got me thinking about another thing that I talk about a lot when I'm teaching from the prophets, is this idea you have in the prophets of a remnant, the remnant idea. And this is, this is the idea that you have Israel, Israel that is descended from Jacob, the Israelites, all of them. Um, and that's like the big group, the big circle, if you like. Um, but within Israel, there was a smaller circle. And this is what Paul refers to in Romans 9 to 11 as true Israel, the remnant. Um, and this was Israelites who were really Israelites. Israelites who actually always remained loyal to Yahweh, always followed his covenant, always worshipped him throughout the history. Um, there's actually a really, really very good example of this in 1 Kings 19, where you know exactly how many of them there were. Um, because Elijah has run away from Jezebel, and he's all feeling sorry for himself and thinking, I'm the only one who worships you in, in all of Israel. So he thinks the remnant consists of one person. <laughs> but God says, no, there are at least 7,000 people who haven't bowed to Baal. So we know at that precise period of time, the remnant was 7,001 in, in, in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, and it's this, it's this smaller group that Paul talks about in Romans 9 to 11, the, the true Israel. Um, the larger Israel very rarely obeyed God's commands. The larger Israel worshipped Baal and other gods. Um, sometimes alongside God, sometimes ignoring God completely. Um, they rarely followed his ways, and they broke his covenant. 
Um, Ezekiel refers to them and say that what they did was to blaspheme God's name among the nations, which is the polar opposite of what they were supposed to do, because they were supposed to be God's priests to the nations. And as I started thinking about this more, I thought, well, perhaps revival in the Old Testament is actually when that smaller group broke out and affected the larger group. When true Israel expanded to more of physical Israel, if you like. You know, and Paul gave us some examples of that last week. The two that immediately spring to mind are the kings David and Josiah. Both of these men were passionate leaders of the remnant. They followed God, they followed his ways, and they led the larger group closer to God. And then also affected the nations around them. Um, they led Israel to do what Israel was supposed to do. Um, Paul also argues that in Romans that that remnant was still going on, even in the New Testament. And in fact, he was a part of it. Because he says the remnant in the first century was the Jews who said, yes, Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus is our Savior. And that carried on going. So it occurred to me then, revival in the New Testament must be when that true Israel, that remnant, that small group, broke out and affected the larger group and then affected the nations beyond. And for me, the clearest example of this is the book of Acts. So I decided my example of revival in the New Testament would be the book of Acts. <laughs> and so after all this thinking for a couple of weeks, I got round to where I was supposed to be in the first place and had a topic to talk about, much to my relief. In Acts, Luke tells the story of how this tiny remnant, well, actually 120 people at the beginning, um, who acknowledged the kingship of Jesus, how they influenced Jews of the larger group from all over the Roman Empire, and how this Jewish remnant became Christ's witnesses in Judea and Sumeria, and then to the ends of the earth, or Rome. Um, he shows how this remnant crossed not only international barriers, but social and ethnic ones too, of how this remnant, driven by the Holy Spirit, began to include Samaritans, and then even Gentiles, how it moved from originally the temple and Jewish synagogues to establishing churches in Greek and Roman cities throughout the world, and how in waves this church expanded and expanded until it finally reached Rome, the heart of the Gentile world, the heart of the known world, where all the nations were gathered anyway. Acts is the story, somebody at one of the, um, one of their enemies in Acts actually described this remnant as this group, small group of men and women who are turning the world upside down. And that sounds like a definition of revival to me. So maybe this isn't such a tricky topic as I thought in the first place. So, what can we learn from this revival in Acts? What can we learn how the Holy Spirit revived Israel the true Israel, the remnant, and made it what it was supposed to be again and brought the nations to God. Well, before I look at some principles I think are in there, some, there's a couple of important things to talk about in Acts. Um, 
Firstly, Acts isn't a manual about how to have a revival. It's not even a manual about how to have a church or how to expand a church. It's a history book. It tells you how the early, what happened in the early church. And what happened in the early church isn't necessarily the same as what should have happened in the early church. It's just telling you what happened. It's a history book, not an instruction manual. Um, it's actually written to one person. It's written to a Roman official called Theophilus, and it's, it's written to kind of explain to him how all this happened, how this little Jewish following turned into this worldwide, empire-wide new religion, and how Paul was um, involved in it. Another important thing to, to talk about is that Acts is history, but it's very, very selective history. Um, he doesn't, Luke doesn't tell the whole story. He leaves out lots of the characters. In fact, he introduces lots of characters and then ignores them for the rest of the book. And you have all of the apostles at the beginning and then hardly any of them are talked about again. Um, years go by between, decades go by sometimes between a couple of chapters and he doesn't talk about what happened. Um, he emphasizes almost completely what Peter's doing in the beginning of the book. And then when Paul pops up, he basically ignores everyone else and just talks about Paul for the rest of the time. So it's very selective history. It's not all of the story. So you can't just look at Acts and say, it says it in Acts, therefore we must do it too. It's a bit more complicated than that. But saying that, there are lots of things that happen in Acts that we can learn from. There are a lot of principles about how revivals happen. There's a lot of principles about how the Holy Spirit works that revival can teach us and how we should respond to it and lots of examples of how we shouldn't respond to it. So I picked out a few. There are lots of them. In fact, as I was rereading my notes this morning, I thought, oh, I could have talked about that. Oh, I could have talked about, oh, that was a good point. That would have worked and I didn't realize like this could have been a lot longer, but you'd be glad to know it's not. But I picked out a couple of things that as I was thinking about Acts and as I was praying about this that kind of popped into my head. The first one is pretty obvious and I think it was talked about last week and I think it will probably talk about every week as we talk about revival. It's prayer. Um, prayer and the teaching of the word. It seems that these are key in all revivals, and this is true of Acts as well. Um, Acts begins with these two, there are two statements in the first couple of chapters in Acts, where the first one in chapter one, where it says, these, these group of people were devoting themselves to prayer. And in a chapter later, it says they were also devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So this revival begins with devotion. Devotion to prayer and devotion to teaching. And because of in between those statements, we actually have an example of the apostles' teaching because Peter got up and did a sermon. And that sermon was all about the Old Testament. It was all about the prophets. It was all about showing who Jesus was through Scripture. So we, knew the, we know what the apostles' teaching was. It was based on the word. And it's from this kind of foundation that the church sprang from. This prayer, um, this focusing on scripture and revealing who Jesus is. 
prayer and the word of God powered by the Holy Spirit. More on the Holy Spirit in a minute. I'm going to say that a lot. Um, that enabled this small group, 120 people, to reach out to Jews all over the Roman world who happened to be in Jerusalem at that time for the Feast of Pentecost. And at the end of the day, over 3,000 people were added. So it, it grew from 120 to 3,120 in one day, which is pretty good, pretty, pretty good increase for this remnant. That's pretty revival-like. So I'm not going to talk too much about prayer because we're going to talk a lot about that, I think. Um, but another thing that popped up to me was unity. I think one, there's this, this the repeated phrase through Acts, of one accord. It is in my translation. Anyway, it might be different or similar in other translations, but of one accord, of one accord, all the way through the book. And I mean, one of the most incredible things about this story is about how united this early church was. Especially when we look around the world today at the church where we see major divisions, we have three main branches, and our branch is the most divided of all of them. Um, <laughs> we have groups of the churches that don't talk to each other, let alone worship together. And when you think about how divided the church is today, and you look back what it was in Acts, it's very, very united in comparison. And which is remarkable, considering where it came from, who it affected, started by a small group of Jews with not much learning or much education. Um, but then it soon incorporated people from all over the world and then different nationalities, different walks of life. Um, it's very remarkable that they were so united. You see them united in prayer, united in mission, united in teaching. And in the Jerusalem church, you see them united in belongings as well when they sold everything and distributed amongst themselves. Though, I would add, that's probably a good example of why you shouldn't just follow all the instructions in Acts. Um, because if you read later on, that didn't actually work out quite well. <laughs> because a few years later, a famine hit Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem church was in trouble because they'd sold all their land and all their belongings. And so they didn't have anything to help them through the famine. <laughs> um, so that's a good example of don't immediately do everything that Acts tells you to. Or that they do in Acts, as Acts isn't really telling you. Um, but not only unity, I think what strikes me is that when divisions did happen, and of course they happen, um, if you get three Christians in one room, you soon get three different opinions. Um, you know, we, we have this tendency to divide because we're humans. <laughs> and we have arguments and we have breakups and that kind of thing. And that happens in Acts. But when it does happen, what strikes me is that there's always this striving to get things sorted out and get them sorted out quickly. Um, some examples of early on in the story, you have within the church, you have those who speak Hebrew, Jews who speak Hebrew, and Jews who mostly speak Greek. And an argument breaks up between these, breaks out between these two groups, basically about, about social care in the church about feeding the widows and feeding the poor. And very quickly, they get together, both sides, and figure out a solution that they're both involved in to sort out the problem. Um, later on, we have a much bigger issue pops up when the Gentiles are included now. An argument breaks out now about whether Gentiles should actually become Jews 
if they believe in Jesus. And this really splits the church. There's the people think, yes, they have to become circumcised. They have to become Jews to follow Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. Um, and then there's people like Paul and Peter who say, no, we couldn't handle all these, all these rules. Why should we give them to the Gentiles too? And they're arguing back and forth. And it gets so bad, they realize we have to sort this out. They call a council, they argue, they pray, <laughs> they get together, and they sort it out. And they come to a conclusion. Later on, you have another division that rises in the church. This is now between later, well later on in the story, you have many, many more Gentile churches than you do Jewish ones. And a rift is beginning to grow between these two groups of churches. And we see this also in 1 and 2 Corinthians and Romans. And, and what Paul and these Gentile churches do is get a collection together and send it to the Jerusalem church, who's going through that famine I mentioned, to help them out. And it's not just one church helping out another, it's also reconciliation that's going on. It's also this Gentile church saying to the Jewish church, we owe you. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know about Jesus. So yes, we have our differences, but we're going to help each other. We're going to stay in unity. So it's not just that they were united. It's that when, when the inevitable divisions happened, they were quick to sort them out. There was a desire to strive for unity, even when there were differences. Another thing that united them was their mission, their call. Um, we know it now as the Great Commission. Um, Acts, I like Acts. Acts has the simplest version. Um, the ones in the Gospels are a bit more long and complicated. Acts is very simple. It's one verse. Um, it's one verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Lots in that little verse, but there's two things I think stuck out to me. It's not the church's power that did this. I mean, that's also at the heart of revival. It's not the cleverness, it's not the ideas, it's not the shows the church puts on, it's not the strategies the church comes up with to gather people in that actually make it happen. It's always the Holy Spirit's power that enables it to happen, not the strength of the church. The second point is you get Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. The church was never meant to be static. And revival, this revival, was not going to be a revival that stayed in one place. And for centuries, all religious life had been focused on Jerusalem. That's where God's house was. So it's obvious that's where it would be. That's where God was living. But now Jesus tells them to go beyond Jerusalem. Um, it's going to be a different model. It's not going to be the world looking at Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem expanding to the world. First, the actual old physical land of Israel, Judea and Samaria, but then beyond that. And the rest of the book of Acts tells us how this remnant spread to Syria, to Cyprus, to Galatia, to Asia, to, to Macedonia, to Greece, um, Crete, Malta, and then eventually Rome. Another thing that struck me was how practical the gospel was in Acts. 
throughout the story, they're not just focusing on salvation. They're not just talking about bringing people into the kingdom. They're actually focusing on making people's lives better. So not just talking about eternal life, but life, eternal life beginning now, helping people right now. How, again, they, they sold each other's property, and the reason they did that, whether it was misguided or not, the reason they did that was to help each other because they were people that didn't have, and so they wanted to give to them. The whole deacon system was set up to help widows and to help people who were poor. Um, the apostles' healing was a way not just of um, evangelizing. Healing brought comfort. Healing brought, was a way of like helping people who had nothing. And we've already talked about how churches raised money for other churches in need. So there's always this, this kind of focus of helping people, making the world better where they were, making their own communities better, and not just their community, but the communities around them too. But I think, coming back to the Holy Spirit, as I've mentioned, the biggest thing about this revival is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Acts is all about the Holy Spirit. In fact, in fact Acts of the Apostles is a pretty poor name for the book. Um, some have said it should be Acts of a couple of the Apostles. Um, but I think a better title would be Acts of the Holy Spirit through a couple of Apostles. Um, it's all about the Holy Spirit. And not just in what I talked about, and the Holy Spirit empowered the church to do things. It was more than that. This revival of this remnant was actually the revival that changed everything. All of the Old Testament revivals that Paul talked about last week, they're all focused on Jerusalem. They're all focused on the temple. Yahweh lived in Jerusalem in the temple. Revivals were about returning to Yahweh, returning to his ways, his covenant. And so where do you go? Where he is, <laughs> in Jerusalem. It was obvious. He lived there. But he didn't anymore. In 586, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. But just before that happened, Ezekiel had a vision. And in this vision, God left Jerusalem. God left the temple. He was no longer at home. And so the Babylonians could destroy it because God was no longer protecting it. Seventy years later, Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. But there's something missing. There's no rushing wind. There's no fire. God did not come home. In the thing that happened in Exodus with the tabernacle and in Kings with Solomon's temple didn't happen to Zerubbabel's temple. And for 500 years, they waited. Waited for God to come out of exile. Waited for God to come home to them. And then one day, as Jews were gathered from all over the Roman world on a feast called Pentecost, God did come home. The rushing wind entered the fire fell in the same way that it had in Exodus, in the same way that it had in Kings, and it entered that group of 120 people on every one of them. He didn't enter the temple that Zerubbabel had made 
and that Herod had made look fancier, he entered the temple his son had prepared for him. The new temple, the church, the remnant. In the same way, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, entered the new temple. And that's be, that was at the heart of this revival, and I think every revival since. The church's job is to bring the presence of God to a needy world. No longer would God be limited to one place. No longer would he be limited to one building. But in all places, his loyal remnant went. In every building the church met in, he would be too. Instead of waiting in Jerusalem for the world to come to him, he would take Jerusalem to the world. And that's the legacy of this first great revival. The church. Um, As I like to call it when I teach Acts, the tabernacle with legs. Everywhere the church goes, the tabernacle goes. (laughs) Everywhere the church goes, the Holy of Holies go. Everywhere the church goes, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit goes too. So how can we apply all this, these few points? How do we live as this revived remnant? Well, in prayer and the word of God. Living lives of communication with our king. Listening to his voice. Learning his ways. Obeying his commands. Interceding for others. Studying his character and ultimately following the example of his son. We live lives of unity, being of one accord, regardless of background, nationality, culture, social standing, to be one in him, equal, standing side by side. But then, as we know, life is life, (laughs) and people fall out, (laughs) and things happen. So when that does, how do we live? If we're not in unity, we strive for unity. (laughs) We strive to put things right, to live lives of reconciliation, to forgive others, to reconcile to others, to find a way to live together, as as what we prayed earlier on today. Lives following our calling, to live as a church empowered by the Holy Spirit, not depending on our own strength, but on his He's the one who enables us to witness wherever he takes us. And to never be a static remnant. To never be a static church. Not to be a church waiting for the world to come to us. Um, But a church that takes the gospel to the world. To preach beyond our walls, in our wider community, in any culture we meet. I think one one great example of Acts is going to different cultures, going to different lands, and how... The gospel is presented in different ways to different people in different times, wherever they are. I think it's also about living a practical gospel. Um, Salvation is a good thing to focus on, but it's not the only thing to focus on. Um, Life goes on, and we are meant to make the lives better of those around us. We are meant to bring the kingdom of God, to be generous to those in our community and beyond, to help those in need, to look after the people on the fringes, 
I think if you take the book of Luke of Acts as a whole, one of the main messages is that Jesus and the church reached out to people that other people refused to reach out to. They were there to the lost, the people who were despised in society. But most importantly, I think we live bringing the presence of God. We affect the larger group. We affect our society. We revive the church. We revive our nation by being the presence of God in a world that needs him so much. I think one of the greatest causes of what we call revivals is when the church begins to realize what they are. When it truly dawns on them that they are temples of the living God. That everywhere they go, they carry the presence of God with with them. They realize that and actually start to live like that. And perhaps that's the big difference. We are revived. Our society is changed when we truly accept our identity. We are God's temple. And we begin to live like we are God's temple. In our individual lives, but probably more importantly, as a group. (laughs) To act as bearers of God's presence. To live like Jesus. To be Jesus. To a broken world who's in much more need of revival than we are. Amen.